all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Hello, Mississippi and surrounding areas. It's Southern Remedy. It's another live presentation of the original Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we're going to talk about whatever you want to talk about today and throw in a little bit of information about some of the new feeding guidelines for infants. Yeah, by the way, you can feed them peanut butter now. So we'll give you some information about that and what other any other information you want that's medically oriented. We're at one eight seven seven MPB ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back to answer your question. Our lines are open now. Right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A leadership election in the Senate is resulting in Mitch McConnell keeping his job as Senate Majority Leader, and Democrat Chuck Schumer has been chosen as the Senate's next minority leader. NPR's Elsa Chang reports Schumer added new members to the leadership team in a gesture to both the progressive and moderate wings in the Democratic caucus. After the leadership election, Chuck Schumer said there's a debate going on about whether Democrats should be the party of the diverse Obama coalition or of the blue-collar heartland. But he thinks there shouldn't be a division. We need to be the party that speaks to and works on behalf of all Americans. And a bigger, bolder, sharper-edged economic message that talks about how people in the middle class and those struggling to make it there can do better. Schumer gave former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders a leadership position as a nod to the party's progressive constituency. Schumer also gave Joe Manchin of West Virginia a leadership role to help get the party's message out to red states. Elsa Chang, NPR News, the Capitol. President Obama is on the second leg of a major overseas trip, likely to be his final one before he leaves office. Obama has just landed in Germany, an ally facing growing anti-immigrant sentiment and uncertainty over a future relationship with President-elect Donald Trump. A Minnesota police officer is charged with second-degree manslaughter in the shooting death of Philando Castile, an African-American man fatally shot in July during a traffic stop in Falcon Heights. Geronimo Yanez, who is Latino, is accused of racially profiling Castile and deciding to pull Castile over. Yanez's attorney says the defendant believed Castile might have been an armed robbery suspect police were looking for and reacted in self-defense. Castile's death and that of many other black men at the hands of police officers over the past year touched off demonstrations and fueled debate over the fractious relationship between law enforcement and communities of color nationwide. In the Syrian city of Aleppo, government warplanes have relaunched airstrikes against rebel-held districts in the eastern part of the city. NPR's Allison Muse reports at least 32 people, including six children, have been killed in the past two days, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. The offensive against the besieged rebel-held side of Aleppo comes after weeks of relative calm. In recent days, Syria's army sent text messages warning of a major offensive. 
The UN estimates about a quarter of a million people are trapped in the siege under worsening humanitarian conditions. And in the rebel-held countryside west of Aleppo, activists say Russia is carrying out airstrikes and multiple makeshift hospitals have been hit. The UN Syria envoy Stefan de Mastura tells the Guardian newspaper that peace can only be achieved through negotiations, not by further military bombardment. But Syria's president Bashar al-Assad has vowed to press on. Alison Muse, NPR News, Beirut. From Washington, this is NPR News. Donald Trump is still traveling without a regular press pool. The White House Correspondents Association says that is unacceptable. Without journalists present, the association notes there's no way to accurately inform the public about the president-elect's whereabouts or actions. They're also not able to uh, to be present when major news related to the president-elect breaks. Last night, Trump went out to dinner with his family without a protective pool of journalists that traditionally tags along. Longtime public radio host Diane Reem's replacement has been announced by WAMU, the Washington, D.C. station that originated the show. NPR's David Folkenflik reports her spot will be taken by Joshua Johnson, who has hosted a radio series about race in America. Johnson's show is to be titled 1A, a reference to the First Amendment and a newspaper's front page. Like Reams, the show is to be a live two-hour program for the middle of the day. It will also be distributed nationally by NPR and is to continue her legacy of civil dialogue and analysis, according to WAMU. Johnson was the host of the series Truth Be Told. He served as a host of San Francisco NPR member station KQED for five years, and he also teaches podcasting at the University of California Berkeley's Journalism School. Reem, now 80, started at WAMU more than 40 years ago as a volunteer. She announced Johnson's appointment on her program Wednesday morning. David Folkenflik, NPR News. U.S. stocks are mixed this hour with the Dow Jones Industrial Average off 75 points at 18,847. NASDAQ is up 10 at 5286, and the S&P 500 is off about 6 points at 2173. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include visiting angels, professional caregivers assisting adults at home in bathing, dressing, meals, and light housework nationwide. Visiting angels, America's choice in senior home care. Learn more at 1-800-365-4189. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hey, welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Welcome you to our weekly live visit and a replay on Sunday morning. So thank you for joining us. It's our pleasure to be here, and it's our job to give you whatever kind of information uh, medically wise that might be helpful to healthier living. Southern Remedy is a co-production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and our producer is Jay White. Uh, So it's all things, it's all things considered. Whatever you want to talk about, we have open lines. It's early enough that you can get in with your question. 
where one eight seven seven MPB ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or if you wish, you can send us a Southern Remedy email at southernremedy at mpbonline dot org. So there you go. We're ready to roll. And by the way, I promised last week that we would be talking about some of the new guidelines for infant feeding. For those of you who are over infancy, uh, this may or may not be uh, such an area of interest, but I think that anybody who is a grandparent or uh, a parent certainly uh, has been shocked by the recent data that clearly show that uh, rather than making allergies worse uh, in children, uh, feeding them things that they might become allergic to makes them less allergic. So the feeding guidelines for infants have been changed by just about everybody involved, the general pediatricians, the allergists, uh, nutritionists, and every other group, that basically somewhere uh, around six months, but not before four months, um, kids should be exposed to a variety of foods, including those that are frequently associated with food allergy, like peanut butter, cooked eggs, dairy, wheat products, and so forth, especially if they come from allergic families, because that tends to desensitize them to these foods. Now, this all needs to be done under the guidance of a pediatrician or an allergist or the combination thereof. And uh, if you want to talk about that, by the way, it's not the way I used to teach people. Uh, when I was doing some general pediatrics, we used to hold off everything, and the longer the better. But that's not the way the data show that works the best. Uh, and there's some real biology behind that. So if you want to talk about that, you want to talk about anything else, uh, we're open to your conversation. Just give us a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Our first caller's already teed up. It's Fred and Pedal. Hey, Fred. Fred, what's going on? Hey, uh, Dr. Rick, how you doing? I'm doing good. How you? All right, thank you. Uh, I heard a repeat of a dermatologist show last Sunday. Yep. And I missed the original, but uh, uh, people were calling in about some uh, severe itching. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, a possible solution. I know it's a fact because it's happened to me uh, several times. Okay. All right. Uh, one of the possible causes is is laundry detergent. Yeah. And there's one main offender that, like you, you use this. Like you know, it does a good job. But uh, and you, you uh, have it on, you start uh, perspirating. It extremely gets worse. Uh huh. And I, I need to mention the name of it because this sure is go ahead. Offender. Sure ahead. Hide. Uh huh. And and I you I worked offshore for about twelve years, and that's what they supplied us with. It's tied. Right. And I was itching to death. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, some of the other people started complaining. They switched to another brand. I've had no problem with any other brand, and my wife started using it. Yeah. You talking about itching, and I finally realized what it was and got rid of it, and I hadn't had a problem since. All right. Well, thank you for that comment. And let me let me address it a little bit, Fred, because it is very pertinent. Uh, for many years, um, the uh, folks who make detergents have been competing uh, to try to get the whitest shirt award for the year. And because of that, 
and uh, the the tightness of that market, they have put more and more additives into household detergents. The major one that has caused problems in laundry detergents have been a series of enzymes that are related to papain, but there are other ones that uh, help digest food and other materials that are hard to get out of uh, laundry. And uh, unfortunately, these enzymes cause uh, allergies, contact dermatitis, in a, a significant number of pop, uh, of the people who use them. Not everybody. Uh, it's a, a minority, but that is the problem. And there are some other additives as well. And that's why almost all of the uh, household detergents now have a free uh, version, Tide-free, this-free, that-free. And uh, if you will look on the labels of those, um, you you can uh, you can determine which ones have enzymes and other additives. So I think in general, if you have dry skin, you are at risk uh, of having problems with contact dermatitis anyway because the skin barrier has been interrupted, and that's a real problem with su- uh, with seniors in particular. That's why we recommend that all seniors that have dry skin use a moisturizer after every bath. We like uh, Aquaphor. We like uh, CeraVe. We like uh, lard. Any kind of grease uh, that will help retain moisture in your skin uh, decreases the, the risk of developing eczema and, in particular, contact dermatitis. So, you are right on target as always, Fred. Thank you. I think there must be a very large library uh, in Pedal. We appreciate that comment, and thank you again. Listen, it's all things considered. It's whatever you want to talk about. We can talk about whatever. So give us a call. We're at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. and we're going to Olive Branch. Hey, Karen. Karen, you there? I am. What's happening? Hi, good morning. I would like to know your opinion on someone with Barrett's esophagus transitioning mm-hmm. off the proton pump inhibitor onto ranitidine. Okay. That is a really good question because, um, and, and it is going to be an opinion because mm-hmm. there really are no controlled trials looking at this. So let me make sure uh, our uh, audience listens, uh, knows what they're listening to about this. Uh, If you have an incompetent lower esophageal sphincter, that is the valve between the stomach and the esophagus, uh, what happens is is that acid runs backwards. When your stomach squeezes, that's called peristalsis, what happens is you eat, it goes down your esophagus, that valve is open, and then a bunch of enzymes and acid are dumped into your stomach, sort of like you would with a washing machine and detergent, like we're just talking about, the food gets digested in there and the stomach squeezes. It's a muscle. It squeezes and pushes the food that's digested into the duodenum and the jejunum where it's absorbed. And that's where you get your energy and whatever's left over goes out in the stool. So if that valve is not working correctly, when the stomach squeezes, the acid goes backwards, not forward like it's supposed to be, and it burns your esophagus. And if you get enough of that, and that's called reflux, 
reflux esophagitis. If you get enough of that going on, it damages the epithelium, the lining of your esophagus. And over time, it can cause a pre-malignant condition called metaplasia. And uh, that is uh, in that area of your esophagus, right above the stomach. And that that is called Barrett's esophagus, Barrett's esophagus. I don't know Dr. Barrett, uh, and I don't know why he was lucky enough to get such a bad problem. But anyway, that's what it is. And up until recently, the gastroenterology committee was recommending that everybody that have reflux get screened for Barrett's esophagus sometime in uh, their life, like when they had their first colonoscopy, they already have have a upper endoscopy. That works out to be not necessary. So <clears throat> we're not doing regular upper endoscopies every time we do lower endoscopies for colonoscopy uh, for people with reflux because it's not that common, and the natural history of Barrett's esophagus is not near as bad as we thought. We thought just about everybody's uh, that had metaplasia changes from reflux would end up with esophageal cancer, and that's not true. It's a very, very small number of people. Now, the way that Barrett's esophagus is treated is to treat the reflux, and the way that that happens, the the, the medicines we have uh, don't do anything with the enzymes because otherwise you eat food and never be digested. It knocks out the acid. And the acid is what goes backwards and burns your esophagus. And there are two receptors for histamine, uh, well, actually a bunch of receptors. But there are two primary receptors for histamine uh, that uh, cause the damage uh, in those cells, the H1 receptor and the H2 receptor. Uh, The uh, antihistamines... uh, 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 primarily affect the H1 receptor. It's the H2 receptor that causes the problem. So that's why uh, people take things like uh, acid blockers, and there are a whole variety of them. And then there are, uh, and that just really effectively shuts down the acid production. And for people who don't have it completely shut down, then we go with one of the older uh, agents, which is an antihistamine against the H2 receptor called ranitidine. So you frequently are prescribed a proton pump inhibitor like uh, many of the ones that are over-the-counter now, Pepsid and others, and ranitidine as a combo if you have terrible reflux. The ranitidine is much less effective in blocking acid production than is uh, the uh, proton pump inhibitor. So uh, if you really have Barrett's esophagus, you probably ought to be on a proton pump inhibitor. And if that doesn't get rid of your symptoms, both. Now, is that what you needed, Karen? That was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> that was very thorough. Well, um, I was just wondering, does the Barrett's override all the bad side effects of the proton pump inhibitor? It's worth it to stay on it. Oh, that boy, boy. Thank you very much for these questions. Maybe you can be a writer for our program. <laughs> uh, so what what you're saying is what is the risk-benefit ratio of suppressing acid production? Because we know that you don't absorb iron well, that <clears throat> you can have problems with osteoporosis, 
uh, from calcium issues with not having acid. Uh, vitamin B12 is not absorbed well without acid. All kinds of side effects now that we're, we're finding from these proton pump inhibitors. And the answer uh, for that is we don't know. But if you're going to take a proton pump, in, uh, if, if you've got Barrett's esophagus, it is probably worth the risk of taking a chronic uh, acid blocker because malignancy of the esophagus is an awful, awful problem. And you can get these over the counter. They don't cost a fortune. And the side effects uh, of acid blockers are usually monitored as your routine uh checkup every year you're you get a we look for anemia we get bone densitometry for uh, women who uh, are most predisposed to um, uh, to osteoporosis uh, and so forth and so on so I would if you have Barrett's esophagus I definitely would take one and your gastroenterologist is going to be looking down there you know not so often as we used to but every every once in a while and sometimes that can um, can uh, uh, improve and go away and you can get off of it so i hope that helps we can talk a lot about reflux i got a lot of information to share with you but uh, i'll save those for the next uh, caller so thank you karen for your call from olive branch we've got open lines we're at one eight seven seven mpb ring Dr. Rick was going to have a pediatric gastroenterologist today, but that person was unable to attend, so I'm standing in for her talking about uh, feeding issues and food allergy in children, if you have any interest in that. But we're always open to all questions on this program, and we want to give you the information you need to do better. So let's go to your call at one eight seven seven mpb ring and while I'm waiting on your call, We'll go to Wiggins and, and William. Hey, William. Hello. My question is very simple. My cholesterol has gone down from 220 to 216. Is that something to be really concerned about? Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. It's not what, and don't hang up because I need more information. Uh, the It's not your total cholesterol that is important. It is the two major components of that, the LDL or bad cholesterol, and the HDL, uh, which is a good cholesterol. Now, my mother had a 320 total cholesterol uh, reading, and she lived until she was 102. The reason she lived till she was 102 is most of her cholesterol was HDL, good cholesterol, which acts like Drano to take all of the plaque out of your blood vessels. And that's why we get so crazy when people's LDLs are high. Anything over 100 is troublesome. If you have heart disease, we try to get your LDL down to 70 uh, because we can get some clean out with some of these statin drugs. So to answer your question, I need to know what your LDL was. Okay, it says on this thing, uh, it says HDL 35 MGDL. Yep. And then HDL is 60 MGDL. LDL is, now let's get this straight. Your HDL, H is in hippopotamus, was 35. And your LDL, like loading. Oh, 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 it said 145 LDL. That's too high. Your LDL Uh, is too high. 
Your cholesterol, uh, total cholesterol, really doesn't mean that much. We want your we want your LDL close to a hundred. The guidelines are arguable right now. Most people with LDLs over a hundred and twenty, we are treating if they have any history of coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis, uh, peripheral vascular disease, or others. So, you need to talk to your doctor who knows your body better than I do. And see, well, let, me, see let me tell you this. I went and had all of those tests done, those four tests where they put that machine to your neck and check your arteries and your right. abdomen, and, and all of those were normal. Yeah, but those tests can't see the plaques in your little bitty coronary artery. Okay. You have to have a CT uh, angiogram to have that done and get a okay. calcium score, and we don't recommend that unless something else is going on. So uh, I believe that your cholesterol may be too high. And even though your ultrasound of your carotids is okay, and that's a good thing, uh, you still could have some small blood vessels at risk. And I would talk to my provider about that. Is that okay? Right. Okay. I have to take the medicine then, huh? I I probably would recommend it, but I'd have to know a little bit more about your situation. Thank you for your call. It's all things considered on Southern Remedy. We just talked to William and Wiggins, and we want to talk to you at one eight seven seven mpb ring Let's go to Wesson and Wesley. Hey, Wesley. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I like your name. All Methodists like Wesley's. Oh, really? Oh, dear. What's your question? Well, I got an, a, a suggestion and... I wanted to ask another question. Okay, I, you're breaking up a little bit. Did you say you have acid reflux? I was told I had acid reflux. They treated me for 20 years. Yeah. I never did actually go away. Sometimes I actually just had chest pain or abdomen pain. And finally, the doctor said, well, let's go have a scan made mm-hmm. of your abdomen. Mm-hmm. Well, they did that, and they found out that I had stones in my gallbladder. I'll be dog. I had my gallbladder taken out in January. Mm-hmm. I haven't had hardly any problems at all with any reflux. Well, you have been blessed, so you are fortunate. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, People who, uh, there are two common problems in Mississippians. Most of us are overweight, and those problems are reflux, and that's when our valve in our stomach doesn't work and protect our esophagus when our stomach contracts because there's so much fat in our stomach it makes the valve not work. And the other thing we frequently have are gallstones. And gallstones occur in the gallbladder, especially in people who are overweight, uh, because of lipid metabolism. I won't go into all of that. But the two are common together. So, uh, And the symptoms can be quite similar. Now, usually people with gallbladder disease have right upper quadrant, right upper belly pain of a cramping nature 
which is intermittent. But that's not always the case. Sometimes they can have other problems, uh, nonspecific belly pain, especially women who feel pain differently than men. Uh, reflux, the classic description of that is a burning feeling in your uh, chest, uh, and and it's, it responds immediately to chewing an antacid like whatever over-the-counter antacid chewable that you can take or taking a proton pump inhibitor uh, like, you know, one of the ones over the counter. But those those don't work as quick. So if you want to know whether you got reflux esophagitis, chew up four uh, Jalucil or whatever other antacids uh, or stomach protectors you want to get hold of, and if it goes away, that's it. Now, there's another thing called hiatal hernia that can simulate uh, a gallstones and reflux, and that's when part of your esophagus gets trapped uh, up in your chest. So there's a big differential diagnosis of stomach pain, and I'm glad by luck because you were persistent. Uh, your doctor uh, finally figured out what's wrong. And the, the, here's, here's the lesson from that story. The way we practice medicine is by trial and error. People don't know that. There are a lot of things that we treat where there are two or three things that could cause the same symptoms. And because there are a lot of body parts, but only one brain. And the brain and systems res- respond to these electrical images from the, uh, or electrical stimulations from p- pain sensations from our body in only a couple of stereotyped ways. So sometimes it's very difficult to sort out which organ is problematic. And we do that by trying an antihistamine uh, to stop stomach uh, acid production or a proton pump inhibitor or using an antacid uh, before we go do your gallbladder test or other things. So when you're going to a doctor and you're having a complaint that is persistent, you have to keep going back. Ultimately, they'll figure it out, but you can't wait two or three years in between each visit to do that. And I'm glad yours is all sorted out. So thanks for your call, call Wesley, uh, Wesley, and uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. And John Wesley is very pleased that, uh, that you are better now. Let's go to uh, Alabama and Williams. Hey, what's going on with you, William? Uh, I had a comment about acid reflux and the cure for it. All righty. It's very simple. Just chew gum, and that puts saliva down in your stomach and encourages uh, uh, digestion. Any kind of gum in particular? No. Just any kind of gum. It's the saliva going down in the gum. When you chew gum, you you digest a lot of saliva. Mm -hmm. And the saliva digests the food in your stomach and quickly relieves the acid indigestion. All right. Well, thank you so much for that suggestion. I appreciate it. Um, Actually, chewing gum does help. Uh, some problems, and uh, and and but usually, its uh, reflux does not respond to that because basically the saliva goes right over the area of the esophagus that is inflamed, and doesn't do anything to make it better. Uh, so I'm not really sure. In some people with uh, hiatal hernias, 
chewing gum is associated with a lot of air swallowing, and it makes them burp. And when they burp, it decompresses the hiatal hernia. So I know that it can be, it's not the best treatment for hiatal hernia, but it can work in some people. So I think probably that might be better for hiatal hernia than for acid reflux. But William, I appreciate that. And I'm sure some people will try it. And I love chewing gum. So thanks a million. Let's go to Pearl River and talk to Stevens. By the way, we have a line open. We're at one eight seven seven mpb ring where is Pearl River County? I guess it's near Pearl River, right? Yeah. <laughs> where, where is that south of Jackson, or where is it? Uh, Pearl River County is between Hattiesburg and uh, uh, New Orleans. I guess. Uh, also, you're really you're really in the southwest part of the state. Yes, sir. I bet it's hey, beautiful. I have a question about uh, policy. Uh, I don't know if things are going to change with. Uh, the election, but I was, my doctors wanted to prescribe a, a medicine for me, uh-huh. but they weren't allowed to, and yeah. uh, they were told that they would be fired if they did, Yeah. but uh, as it turned out, it was the only medicine that would actually keep me alive, and I, I ended up talking to the people at the FDA were in charge of it, and they said, yeah, that's exactly what you need. I had the NIH send me an eight-page letter saying... This is what you need. But the regulators told uh, the attorneys at the clinic where my doctors were at that they had to find somebody who had prescribed this medicine before. Well, what medicine but, is it? Uh, it's called Rapamune. They use it for uh, people who uh, kidney transplants about 400,000 patients a year. Uh-huh. Uh, the FDA, the lady in charge of Rathamune, uh, the doctor up there, said that there was no incentive for Pfizer to pay the $4 million to do the study for a rare disease like mine, where there are probably only five people in the whole country ended up dying. <clears throat> and what is that disease? Uh, transverse myelitis. Um, I, I know. NIH has a group that studies this. They sent, they sent me a letter saying that. About one-third of the people who get this are left with unremitted, unlimited inflammation. Yeah. And they have to find some medication that will reduce the inflammation that they can take. Okay, I I got it. I actually did part of my training at the National Institutes of Health, so I I know about those studies and what you're talking about. So let me address that. We physicians are having increasing problems with prescribing medications off-label. And what you're talking about in this particular, I thought you were talking about a compounded drug, but what you're talking about is a drug that is approved for one use and not approved for the other, and your other is the one it's not approved for. So we, we do a lot of that. We have, for instance, right now there are a whole bunch of biologic agents like Enbrel and Humira, And the clinical trials have been done in rheumatoid arthritis, but not in lupus or psoriatic arthritis. So it's approved for one disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and we know it'll work in psoriatic arthritis, but the insurance won't pay for it because it's not approved. And the insurance is usually the problem. They don't want to pay for anything that will cost them money. And so we are frequently told that we can't get a drug like Rapamune for uh, uh, a 
off-label use because it's not approved, and we have to write all these letters to the insurance companies, and they they have clerks review them. Eventually, we get to a doctor who is paid by the insurance company to keep the cost down, and uh, they make a choice of whether we can get the drug or not, and we frequently can't get it. So that's the system that is in place right now, and I understand your doctor's problem, and I have this, since I'm a rheumatologist too, uh, I have this problem every day. So I understand your problem. I understand your anxiety about it, and I do not have a fix for it. We'll see if some of the changes in the FDA process uh, are made in the next several years because a lot of problem people with unusual diseases are having this problem Steve, so you're you're right on. I, I do think that there are other drugs that can be used for transverse myelitis that are immunosuppressants that can be good, and that includes Cellcep and some others, which would, again, be an off-label use. But since it's cheap, they usually will approve that. So stick with your doctor. This is your doctor's problem to fight for you and for the drug you need. So I appreciate your call, and I hope that is helpful. And if you need more information, just send me an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, and we are here for you today. Whatever question you want to ask, man, tee it up. We're good for it. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, And we're going to Jackson and Memphis and Scuba and your house right after this break. Support for MPB comes from the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama at Children's of Alabama, a cardiovascular care center for children in Birmingham, Alabama. More at childrensal.org slash heart. On Creature Comforts, we talk about Mississippi's abundant wildlife with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science and a special guest each week. Also, Dr. Troy Major is on hand to answer questions about your pets. I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us Thursday mornings at 9 with a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6 for Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello, and welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo from the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and we're taking all questions on all topics for you and trying to get through as many of these questions as we possibly can. 
This is a fairly urgent one, so let me answer it as an email, and this is from Shirley. Shirley wants to know if there is anybody that is specializing in this condition called primary pulmonary hypertension at UMC, and in fact, there is a primary pulmonary hypertension clinic run jointly by cardiology, the heart failure people, and the pulmonary people. And uh, if you want to call the main UMC number uh, and ask for referral to that, uh, you can get in. Or if you want to send me an email with your contact information, I can get you to them. So that's one of the special uh, programs that academic health centers uh, are very interested in because uh, it there are a bunch of new drugs for that problem, uh, some of which require uh, experimental um, uh, permission, and we have some of those drugs plus some of the ones that are already on the market. So there you go. Let's go to Memphis and talk to Welma. Hey, Welma. Oh, oh, sorry, it's Nick. Well, uh, Welma, we'll be right with you. Hey, Nick. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing good. I almost got out of order, and, and I got there's an electric charge under my chair. <laughs> and whenever I make a mistake up here, Jay White, the uh, the sports guru up here, zaps my chair, and I you know I, you know I don't have any hemorrhoids because I've been electrocuted so much. So, what's your question? Yeah, I'm a therapist, so I see people primarily for mental health and addiction concerns. And a number of the people I work with um, are being treated for anxiety disorders and um, processing traumatic experiences. Yeah. Now, that leads oftentimes to um, a lot of nausea, and I have several patients that have Crohn's disease. Yeah. And so I know that stress is related to those, so I'm wondering how – what could be helpful in the management of the physical side to enable them to get the treatment from the the psychological side? Because um, I know the two are, are more interrelated than uh, credit is often given to. Right, and you're, you're absolutely on target. <clears throat> People with any chronic disease um, uh, need to uh, be, that's serious, need to be evaluated by someone who can give them psychological counseling if they need it. And we're very fortunate at UMC to have a great backup group of people who do just that. Frequently, it only takes one or two visits, and uh, they get some skill sets and stress management and so forth and so on that are very helpful, and it's helpful to them. Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease in particular is a disease that is frequently associated with a very high level of anxiety and depression. And if you never knew when you were going to have to have a bowel movement, it would do the same thing with you because many of these people, when their disease is active, have a lot of diarrhea. It can be explosive. Uh, It can occur without notice. And here they are trying to make a living or go to school or whatever, and they never know what's going on. Now, the therapy has gotten much, much better. And we have some amazing new treatments that put most people in remission, but it's still very stressful. It requires a lot of ongoing doctor contact and so forth. So I think, uh, Nick, I don't know where you're you're going with your thoughts, but I will tell you this. 
uh, I think the best thing uh, to uh, resolve uh, these problems or at least treat these uh, um, stress problems in these patients is communication between the the treating physician and the clinical psychologist, social worker, or whatever health professional is doing that. And our problem is in Mississippi that we're so short on psychiatrists, psychologists, and medical social workers that uh, there aren't enough of them to go around. Uh, you know what a problem the VA has had with this. And, uh, and when we do get a patient and refer them, uh, it's sort of hard to get hooked up to communicate with each other. The records are protected by HIPAA, and the doctors, the MDs, can't get the psychiatric or other records, and that blocks us from knowing what they're doing. And so there's a communication problem. So if you're going to fix one thing uh, from your side that would be helpful, that would be encouraging your colleagues to uh, figure out a way to communicate with the doctors like I'm doing on my side, trying to get the doctors to uh, refer these patients and communicate with the uh, social workers and clinical psychologists and other people who take care of them. I, I'm not sure if that's what you were talking about, but from... That's very helpful. Um, I'm wondering in terms of like intermittent um, stress that comes on, like is, would it be helpful for them to take an, um, an acid reflux medicine or something in preparation if um, they're going to be going to therapy or something that is does cause their stress to increase or nausea to increase um, as uh, precautionary to yeah yeah so uh, so if your if your therapy with them is being interrupted by physical symptoms uh, like nausea uh, or vomiting or diarrhea or whatever. Uh, obviously, there are medicines that we can give them. Odansetron uh, is a wonderful anti-nausea medicine with few side effects that we use frequently uh, and so forth. So what I would do, uh, I think uh, if, if you call the, if you, if you have time to do this and call the doctor's office and tell them that you were <clears throat> providing support for a patient in their practice and, and they're having signs and symptoms that are limiting your ability to do your counseling and so forth, I think they would, they would probably jump and down, up and down and scream and thank you and, uh, and give that patient the appropriate uh, treatment to get through therapy in a more comfortable fashion. So, Nick, thank you so much for bringing that up. It's something that is an ongoing problem for all of us. We've got open lines. We're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. Got a little less than fifteen minutes left, and we left, and we can answer a lot of questions. So we have some lines open. Give us a call. Uh, we where are we going next, Jay? Hey, Wilma, what's going on in Memphis? Hey, it's warm up here. Yeah, it's a crazy winter, isn't it? Yes, it is. I was recently diagnosed with Mycobacterium. Arium? Uh-huh. Does that sound right? It's close. It's avium. Avium. Okay. Uh, I just went to the drugstore to pick up the medication that the pulmonary doctor prescribed to go with the nebulizer that he had me order. Mm-hmm. The medication is $500. Mm-hmm. I cannot afford that. 
I am uh, trying to decide what to do. The only time I'm really short of breath is on exertion. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So, so let me let me help is. you. Let me help you with that. And I understand exactly where you are. Um, so you basically have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and you were coughing and they cultured your sputum and that's what grew out. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So this is very, very common. <clears throat> and uh, many people uh, with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, uh, grow mycobacterium avium, which is an atypical tuberculosis organism. It's not the TB that causes TB. It is an atypical uh, organism, and most of the time it doesn't cause any problem at all. Uh, Frequently, people who have obstruction in their airway grow this, and the job of the pulmonary doctor is to figure out whether or not the, uh, the germ that's being cultured out is actually causing disease or is just a freeloader in your airway, okay? And uh, evidently, he has decided that it is uh, actually causing inflammation. <clears throat> In most of uh, most occasions, when a pulmonary specialist um, uh, makes this diagnosis, they will get a second opinion from an infectious disease person or other people because it's very hard to determine whether this organism, which can just be visiting, uh, is causing problems. So not everybody who has uh, this germ cultured out that has COPD has a, the infection with this that causes problems. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, all TB uh, is uh, reportable to the health department. <clears throat> and I don't know about your health department, but you could call anonymously and say that I I have been diagnosed with mycobacterium avium infection. Can I be seen in one of your clinics? In most uh, in most health departments in most states, they can give you your medication or arrange for your medication at a price you can afford. And if you can't afford it, they'll get it free for you. So uh, that's another thing. The third okay. thing is there are whole, suggestions. Th- there's a third one. Right. Uh, there are a whole bunch of different drugs that can be used to treat that, and some of them are cheap as dirt. So what he has done is given you the easiest one to take that is uh, the most effective, uh, and he he could probably give you some that are not as easy to take that would be a lot cheaper. Uh, and uh, and so there are many, many choices. So I, I would go back to him and say, how do you know this is actually making my disease worse? And if he says, I'm not sure, ask for a second opinion from an infectious disease person. That's number one. Number two, I would call the health department, see if you can get your medicine for free or whatever. And third, uh, I would definitely ask him to prescribe something cheaper because that's crazy. You can't afford that. I can't afford that. How's that? That's great. Good to talk to you. Send me an email if you need more help. Okay, thanks. All right, good to talk to you. This is Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics, and this is All Things Considered on Southern Remedy, our Wednesday program, replayed on Sunday morning to wake you up with a joyful sound. Uh, We have some open lines. We'd love to have you call us, 1-877-672-7464. Let's go. 
to Gaucher and Lynn. Hey, Lynn. Lynn. What's happening? Hi. This is Lynn from Gaucher. Yes, ma'am. You're on okay. air. Uh, I love your show. Thank you. First of all, what I have to talk about that you're going to go nuts on because you're going to yell at me and tell me I'm no, nuts. No, I don't do that. I'm a biologist, and for years and years, I have really questioned this flu vaccine that mm-hmm. the pharmaceuticals make mm-hmm. about $2 billion a year on. I'm sitting here in front of a site from the CDC, and it says the effectiveness of the flu virus each year is a 50 to 60% of the overall population during seasons when most circulating flu viruses are like the vaccine viruses. Right. It was reviewed the 25th of August, updated yesterday. 50 to 60 percent. Yep. That's almost like using no birth control and hoping for no child. <laughs> 50 percent. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know exactly. I'll tell you what the arguments are about that. The arguments are that although it may not protect you from getting the flu, you get, the flu you get is less serious than if you hadn't been immunized. I cannot find the data on that, but that's what the public health folks say, and that's what I say to my patients. Uh, secondly, uh, flu is not a, uh, uh, a simple problem in most adults. A number of people uh, with 10 to 15 percent of people with with flu who are adults, especially if they have pre-existing medical problems, get a right. inf- uh, bacterial pneumonia on top of it, and a number of those people die. So uh, it's a risk-benefit ratio. Uh, the argument is that the risk of taking the flu shot is very low, that the risk of getting the flu is very high, that the risk of getting of complication of the flu is significant, and therefore the risk-benefit ratio is taking a flu shot that doesn't work well. Now, here's the yeah, fix I on it. Here's the fix on it. I also just read mm-hmm. that when people get the flu virus and get the, a minor flu from it, mm-hmm. they have drugs to treat that. Yep. Yep, that's well, with the old live flu virus, and we're not using that this year. All the... F- flu virus that we are using now is basically attenuated or killed and we don't usually get a typical flu infection when we were using the live flu virus we would give the the same uh, antiviral pill that we gave uh, people who get the flu untreated the problem is is that when you wait to get the flu and take the antiviral it's about as effective as the flu shot. It doesn't do that much good in most people. In fact, at the very best, it makes you feel better a day earlier than you would if you hadn't taken the antiviral medicines, and there are several of them that you can get. Here's the good news. There is a new technique. I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes or one of the programs on TV where Dr. Tony Fauci, who is the director of the National Institutes of Health, is working on a uh, a new shot for Zika, and they have developed this amazing new technology where they can gen out a vaccine uh, in a period of weeks and insert the latest and greatest version of it into this vaccine that makes it much more effective. So I would guess that within four years, we will they will be waiting 
to immunize you until they have the va- the the particular variation on the flu virus that's going to be out today, which right now they guess every year, but they can actually have it, put it in one of these things and get it out, and then you'll get a 90% protection. So I totally agree with you. Right now, it's not good, but I think it's going to get better. And thank you so much for your call and and for being a biologist. We need more biologists. Let's go to Margaret in Wiggins. Hey, Margaret. Hello, yes. You are now famous. You're on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. (laughs) (laughs) I've been on it quite a few times with different questions with different programs. You're even more famous. You're even more famous. (laughs) (laughs) I I have been recently diagnosed with either pre-diabetes or diabetes. I think they said Mm pre-diabetes. I went to a uh, diabetes clinic at my doctor's office, and uh, they gave me all kinds of literature and everything. And he had given me a prescription, which I filled, but I haven't taken yet. Now, this has been about three, I said three weeks ago that I was originally diagnosed. Okay. I have no symptoms. There's no history of diabetes in my family. But I was, had a very bad sweet tooth, and I was eating a lot of junk food and sweets and things like that. Since I've been to the clinic three weeks ago, I've totally and completely modified my diet hoping that that might be able to solve the problem and I won't have to take the, I think it's called formin. Metformin. Metformin. Right, Mm. right, which I have not taken any of it yet because I'm waiting to see if I can modify it by this diet that that the dietician who's a diabetes specialist gave out at the clinic. Okay. So what's your question for me? The question for me, and I'm (laughs) going to go back in about another week when it had been a month, uh, and that I've been on the diet and be retested. Mm-hmm. Would that make, would the diet alone make a difference? Do you think the diet alone will not make a difference? Weight loss will. If you're losing weight on the diet, oh, I am. Okay. Yeah. So what happens in uh, in diabetes is your liver, when you're overweight, your liver gets full of fat. It's called steatosis. And the insulin regulatory meta, uh, and all the all the various chemicals in your body that regulate sugar are uh, are connected to the liver. So when your liver's full of fat, it doesn't work worth a darn in regulating insulin, and you de- have to develop you develop higher and higher and higher levels of insulin that don't work. Actually, people with type two diabetes have too much insulin, not too little. And uh, if you lose weight, that fat in the liver gets better and better, and then you're, it starts working again, and then your diabetes can go away. It usually takes at least a 10% weight loss uh, to see that effect. So if you've lost 10% of your weight, you're, you're, you may have normalized your blood sugar and your A1C, which are the two things we look at. So you're right. Go back. Have it checked again. But this time, if it's still up, Then get on the metformin, and then you can get off of it later. Well, we left a few callers on. Send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. We'll be back beginning our holiday program series next week, same time, same place. Mississippi uh, Public Broadcasting and the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And you, our members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting, make this program possible. Catch a replay of today.